on air, online, on digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, an important mining conference discusses the future of critical minerals. We're going to have to mine more copper in the next 30 years than has ever been mined in human history. Now that tells me that there's going to be have to be massive investment. And where are those investment dollars coming from? We'll talk about that. Also, the glut of blueberries looks over. Prices are rising. I think that with volumes falling off, that now's the time to increase that payback. And there will be less berries... Um, there'll still be a lot, but there'll there'll be less than there were last week and the week before and the week before. And so now's the moment to increase the price. The berries rising in price as the season settles down. That story coming up. And the future of mining discussed at an international conference in Sydney. G'day, Tony Briscoe with you on this Monday, where Australian lobster fishers are keenly watching the visit to China by the Australian Prime Minister, hoping for good news on the recommencement of trade with that country. That story coming up for you in just a moment. Also today, a group of Canadian wine buyers touring Australian wineries, including Tasmanian wineries, to source the best drops. And we hear from a UK farmer who talks about the need for farmers there to collect climate data. But who pays for it? We'll check the latest on the weather and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 936 is that text line number 0438 922 936. First up today, the indications from the visit to China by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Trade Minister Don Farrell is the trade in Australian lobster or crayfish is set to resume. The pair were photographed at a trade expo in China holding up lobsters for the camera and the word is the ban on Australian court craze is about to end. New CEO of the Rock Lobster Fisheries Association, Kylie Cahill, says the signals are all positive. Okay, well, it is it is very heartening. Um, it's good to have the, our, our products front and centre. Um, our rock lobster fishermen, the commercial fishermen, have had a really rough time over COVID. Um, the China market disappeared overnight. Um, at the time, the, the difference in prices, it went from $100 a kilo down to about $30 a kilo, which is a huge crash. Um, a lot of... We had fishermen, we've lost fishermen from the commercial industry uh, due to the financial pressures during COVID and with the Chinese closure. Um, so we're, we're cautiously optimistic that it's going to come back online soon and we're certainly appreciative of, of um, uh, Mr Albanese and Mr Farrell's efforts in China. And so you're hopeful that those tariffs. Yep. So you're hopeful that those tariffs might be negotiated away. Is there any prospects? I mean, obviously, Christmas a lesser market in China than than Chinese New Year is. Um, have you got any information that might suggest those tariffs could be dropped for Chinese New Year? Uh, we don't, unfortunately, at this point. There is. There's been a lot of rumours with you know Chinese market maybe opening soon, and 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 that's happened a lot of times, but. Uh, it's very difficult, to, as you would understand, to run your business model on rumours. Um, so we've just been holding on and, and um, we're in contact with the national bodies um, and they're certainly making uh, great efforts um, w- working with the ministers and working with Mr Albanese to get this back up and running as soon as possible. What would it mean for local prices, Kylie? And I want to stress, you're new in the job. I know that in three weeks' time you'll be maybe more adept with some of the numbers around this than, than you are right a now. A Yeah, I, and, and we totally understand that um, and appreciate you talking with us. But let's talk about local prices. So I remember Christmasing, uh, Christmasing in Queensland um, after these tariffs went in and everyone was talking about buying crayfish for the first time in years. It had become more affordable for Australians. Should we expect a dramatic escalation in prices locally if China reopens to the commercial fishers? Uh, When China closed, um, the drop meant that there was a lot more product available because there there wasn't that sale overseas. Um, I'm unsure as to when China would come back online, but certainly... um, what the best thing for people to do is is to source, you know, the bargain to be had is to source uh, crayfish from back of the boat sails, so off the boat sails at wharves. That's the best idea. But in terms of prices, I'm unsure 
uh, you know, where that's going to head or whether it'll reopen in time for Christmas or not. Christmas is only, uh, what are we now, six weeks away. It's a very short, very short time away. So unfortunately, I can't give you much more information on that one. Carly Cale, the new CEO of Rock Lobster Fisheries Association, talking to Leon Compton on ABC Statewide Mornings about the end of the ban from China on Australian lobsters. We shall follow that story closely. Well, with Australia in a mad rush to build renewable energy networks, where will the raw materials and all the end products come from? The world is desperately short of critical minerals and wary of China, which dominates the supply of wind towers, solar panels and batteries. So how does Australia manage the relationship with our biggest trading partner? David Clawton filed this report from the International Mining and Resource Conference. We're going to have to mine more copper in the next 30 years than has ever been mined in human history. Now that tells me that there's going to be, have to be massive investment. That's Clyde Russell, Reuters Asian Commodity Analyst. I met him at IMARC, the International Mining and Resources Conference in Sydney. He's been watching the rise of China over the last 20 years and he thinks we'll need China to fund new mines to build the renewables needed for the transition to net zero. Australia is already the world's biggest supplier of lithium, a key mineral in batteries, and a big exporter of iron ore, bauxite, gold, lead, diamonds, rare earth elements, uranium and zinc, all of them used in the production of renewables. Most of that raw material goes to China, which is our biggest trading partner, and they turn our minerals into the end products for the world market. The federal government is concerned about that reliance on China, given the security threat they pose, their use of sudden trade bans on key Australian commodities, and worries about supply shocks that affected so many critical imports during the pandemic. Clyde Russell says they're right to be worried. It's a legitimate concern. I, I think it's, it's, it's safe to say that the Chinese government has shown that it will act in its own interests first. Um, and where its interests uh, align or coincide with the interests of, of Western countries, that's great, that's fine. But if they don't, then the Chinese will do what they want first. The federal government has just put $4 billion into a fund to help finance critical minerals projects, and it wants to see Australia partner with the United States to develop an alternative supply chain for renewable energy products. Clyde Russell says $4 billion is a drop in the ocean, and much more money will be needed to make that work and to fund new Australian mines. $4 billion is not needed in Australia. It's more like you know, 40, 400 billion. And even then, we still wouldn't even be able to do it. If you look at a, this um, this mining conference where we are at, at IMARC, there's, I don't know, 50, 60 small miners in, in, inside the hall. They're all seeking... It's an incredible vibe. They're all sitting in the tiny little booths and they're all spruiking their projects looking for money. Yeah, and none of them are going to get it. What has happened over the last 20 years is China's basically become the processor of minerals and metals in the world. They've got a head start, they've got scale, they've got economies, you know, and you're now saying we're going to like, oh, we're going to build this our- ourselves in Australia and the US and in, in Europe. It's just a massively, massively expensive. You're, going to, you're talking trillions. And you actually are going to be doing this at the same time that you're, in theory, changing your energy systems as well, putting in all these renewables and the, you know, the, the sort of um, storage solutions to back them up. That's also costing trillions. So you know, at some point, somebody's going to pay for it. And you know, ultimately, that comes down to, can you get private capital interested? Well, we see in Australia that that's not really happening. The big mining companies aren't really investing. It's difficult to raise enough money through local capital markets. Uh, retail investors are not interested. Uh, so where is the money going to come from? It either comes from taxpayer dollars or it comes from other sources of capital. <laughs> that circles you back to China. So if we need China, what can we learn from Chinese companies already in Australia? Yang Coal is listed on the Australian and the Hong Kong stock exchanges, but its major shareholder is a Chinese state-owned company. They started out by buying a small mine in the Hunter Valley and got a lot bigger when they took over Felix Resources and then they bought coal and allied assets from Rio Tinto. Yang Coal is now worth $10 billion. Michael No, the chief commercial officer, told the conference the company does exchange knowledge and ideas with its Chinese connections, but it's not wedded to that culture. Almost 100% of the, uh, of the management uh, is Australian as well as, uh, as the employees. Uh, but at the same time, obviously, we've got the, uh, the connection with uh, China through our uh, majority shareholder. Um, so it's, uh, for us, it's really uh, trying to, um, I guess, draw out sort of the, you know, the key strengths from the different cultures uh, and bring that to, uh, to our advantage. 
Uh, I think secondly, over time we've learnt that um, you know doing business differs from country to country, and you need to uh, to adjust accordingly. Uh, and uh, having local management is uh, is critical. It helps you to deal with issues such as how you manage the workforce. Uh, how you run the mine in terms of you know the health and safety requirements, the mine design, uh, utilising different technology, different equipment, uh, how you manage uh, different stakeholders such as government, uh, the community, the workforce. But at the same time, I think um, when it's appropriate, um, we do uh, exchange knowledge and ideas with um, our counterparts in China. Uh, the Chinese uh, underground coal mining industry is uh, is very large and very uh, and very sophisticated, um, and um, it provides a uh, a, um, a good source of knowledge for us uh, in terms of um, you know exchanging ideas on uh, on uh, various uh, technical equipment issues and so forth. Hanking Australia is a subsidiary of China Hanking Holdings, which is part of the state-owned ChemChina Group. It's listed on the Hong Kong Exchange and has a history of mining iron ore in China, which is used in the production of wind towers. They bought some WA gold mining companies over 10 years ago and have been looking for new gold reserves. Managing Director Mark Q says there's a lot of potential for new mines in Australia. In the last 10 years... Our team discovered more than four billion ounces of gold resource in Australia, and like currently we we took over primary gold from us in, 19, in 2018, and and since then we have increased the resource for another million ounces. So the reserve we increased nine times to 1.64 million ounces of reserve, one of the largest in Australia, definitely. Hanking Gold is sold to the Perth Mint. Another huge Chinese company in Australia is MMG Limited, who mine base metals like copper and zinc. They're part of China Min Metals, which is a Chinese state-owned company. But their mining company, MMG, have their headquarters in Melbourne, and they run their operations from there in Africa, Asia, Canada and Latin America. They do export to China, but a lot of their product goes to other countries as well, and Australian staff are working with them in Africa, Laos and Peru. CEO Liang Zhang Li told me they want to build processing facilities here, as they've done in Indonesia. In Australia, we're talking about uh, uh, you know, building up a hydroxide plant in different parts of Australia. Yeah. We're a project offshore, uh, overseas, outside China, as well as inside China. So a large part of the material that we produce uh, or, or process is actually outside China and serve the market outside China, uh, totally internationally from that perspective. So while some Chinese companies are doing well in the Australian mining sector, investment has collapsed in the last few years due to a number of decisions by the Foreign Investment Review Board. FERB has blocked Chinese telecommunications company Huawei and two Chinese bids for major lithium projects in Australia. Clyde Russell thinks the Australian government has to avoid doing that in future and he's hoping Anthony Albanese's visit to China will help relations to normalise because they're an essential part of the transition to renewables. Well, I think the positives there are a sort of normalisation of, of relations with what is effectively Australia's most important trading partner. Um, I think we've already seen that. I think what you what the Chinese will be saying is that they want to be more involved in Australia. From an investment point of view, they'll be looking for assurances that when they want to do deals that they won't get knocked back. Um, and I think it will be interesting to see what uh, the current government feels about that, whether they're, they're prepared to do it. On the whole, though, you know, it's, it's good to have a reset of your relations after a difficult period. Anybody who thinks we can do without China... Um, not just Australia, just the Western world in general, is, is kidding themselves. And if you really want to sort of get China out of your systems, it's going to cost a tremendous amount of money. As always, the relationship with China is fraught. As a nation, we're deeply entwined, both in our mining and agricultural industries. But we're also deeply suspicious about whether China is a friend or a foe. Yes, that's David Claudon ending that report from the International Mining and Resource Conference, which was held on Friday in Sydney, attracting people from right around the world. You heard a couple of uh, people there from that conference, a couple of Chinese people. Uh, Tony uh, is not too happy about uh, Australia tying itself up with trade with China, but as you heard there, um, we simply have to if they're our biggest trading partner at the moment. 
and they want the things that we've got, but they can pick and choose as well. And uh, we shall watch with interest to see what happens with that lobster sector. Coming up in a moment, we'll talk blueberry and strawberry prices. Afternoons. 12-year-old Olive Nielsen has just been declared the children's mayor of Hobart. With Joel Reinberger. Are you going to make your teacher and your mum call you the mayor from now on? Yes. I wrote to have a (laughs) tram route running all the way into Hobart CBD and back out again. This is only our start. Dave in Hobart asks, should children be allowed to vote? Mm. Yes, maybe 15, 16. Joel Reinberger, weekdays from 1.30pm on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Blueberry prices are starting to increase as the strawberry picking season continues. Consumers are now paying more than they were last month. Low prices for blueberries affected the price of the strawberries as there was a crossover of seasons. The weather conditions were conducive to a huge blueberry crop. Berries Australia's Anthony Pointer says it's good for consumers but a little bit hard on farmers. Berries uh, as a category of course has been uh, increasing in production across Australia um, for quite a lot of years now. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, consumption has kept pace with that. But particularly in this last period, um, year on year, if, we're, if I take, you know, the, the nine months to year to date since, since uh, the beginning of January, volumes are really up about 50% across all berry types. Hmm. And so it's a, it's a very significant increase. Um, now, why are the volumes up? Well, in a number of areas, um, big growing areas for blueberries, northern coast of New South Wales, uh, where I am here at one of my Queensland farms, you know, we've had better weather we have, and we have had uh, a lack of the sort of hail, storms uh, and other negative impacts on the various regions. So been good growing conditions for blueberries. Um, uh, equally, that's the case uh, for strawberries. Um, in uh, particularly in this uh, southeast Queensland area, and what that's meant is through late winter into spring, uh, blueberries have had a significant increase in production. Strawberries have had a significant increase in production, but also the strawberry season is late, so it's coinciding with the blueberry season. So it's like a perfect storm of, of good things, but the timing's a bit off. Well, it's a perfect sum of good things uh, if you're a consumer because there's been a lot of very good berries out there. But the other side to that has been the prices have have been pushed down a long, long way, and that's been extremely difficult. So before Uh, we get to that, just to reiterate, just to go over that a little bit, so mm -hmm. the blueberry and the strawberry seasons in some areas have crossed over a bit where normally they might not have. That's right. Strawberries uh, are late this year, largely because of delayed runner supply, and hence the strawberry season is later, and it happens then to coincide with peak production of blueberries. So they're all uh, in, this, in the market at the same time. That's right. That's right. And when you you know when uh, when a, a shopper goes through and you know they they want to pick up strawberries, they want to pick up blueberries, they want to pick up raspberries and blackberries too. But um, but you know there's there's a limit to, uh, you know, to what they're prepared to spend on berries at any one moment. Yeah, so if they're going to buy blueberries, they're not going to pay, and they get those cheaper, they're not going to pay a big price for strawberries. So they're going to expect all berries to be, well, they might do yeah. away with the strawberries. Well, I mean, you know, you've, you've, you've filled up that part of your fridge with berries now. So there's just a lot to move. Um, and in an attempt to move more, we're, you know, the prices have been, uh, have been lowered by the, by the retailers. I've seen them round uh, $2 for a small punnet, $2.50. Is that about it for blueberries? Well, actually, two things have happened there. Yes, $2, and that, that's a net very low price. But actually, if you look closely, in most places, the punnets are actually one and a half times the size that they were. They're 170 grams now, not 125 in these peak, peak time periods. Why? So we're selling more blueberries per punnet. But for no more dollars. So, you know, that has further exacerbated the problem. Mm, why are those punnets a little bit bigger? Um, in an attempt to, uh, 
you know, to, to sell more berries, more berries, more kilograms of berries. Um, and so a slightly bigger punnet um, and, and, and more are sold. So how's this affecting growers? Um, well, it's, this has been extremely difficult with the low pricing. Um, the increased production, uh, you know, was because of kind of weather conditions was very good, of course. But then you've spent all of your money and you've sent it off to market and, you know, pricing, as you say, $2 for 170 grams of uh, blueberries, uh, low pricing on strawberries as well. And th- it's actually gotten to the point that for quite, you know, for quite a long period of time, these berries are being sold below the cost of production. So farmers are losing money. Can they sustain that? Clearly that's not sustainable. You can't lose money, you know, week on week, month on month, year on year. So that's it's just not a sustainable position. We need to really look for the opportunities to get back to a fair trade between what a farmer can afford to produce for and, and uh, you know, what a retailer will sell at. We need to see that change very soon. Who can change that? I think if uh, I think I'd call upon the retailers to anticipate uh, how production is falling away and to not be tardy in uh, putting that price back up to something that's that's a fair deal that's more sustainable that won't drive farmers to the wall are, are some sort of heading towards the wall yeah some are there's no doubt about that farmers are a hardy hardy group and they'll tough it out a long time but that this is just not a sustainable level do you see prices changing at all in the near future as the seasons go on I think they should change right now, right now. I think we should be, you know, we should be starting to see, you know, significant increases in what retailers are paying, um, you know, for a tray of a tray of a strawberry and of a blueberry. I think we should see that as of now. By choice, do you mean, or you think it's going to happen because the seasons are, are sort of progressing? I think that with volumes falling off, that now's the time to increase that payback. And there will be less berries. Um, there'll still be a lot, but there'll there'll be less than there were last week and the week before and the week before. And so now's the moment to increase the price and give farmers a chance. What's your final message to consumers? Well, we've had a lot of berries uh, being produced this year, but the other side to that is the quality is excellent. So these... His berries, all types of berries, are good for you, incredibly good deal. The quality is very high. Enjoy them. Enjoy them, yes. Berries Australia's Anthony Pointer talking about berry prices with Fiona Breen there. And speaking of berries, for a big berry company like Costa, the seasons are carefully planned to roll down the eastern seaboard from state to state, making sure the supermarkets get them 52 weeks a year. But it's been really warm, as you hear, and dry. And the strawberries have come out a bit early. Costa Berries Operational Manager Rowan Kyle from Devonport says it's a bit early to tell whether the season will end early or not. Yeah, it's early days in the start of the season, but we've been working solidly over winter to get things set up, and generally things are set up pretty well across all of our farms. Um, how's the weather been affecting the berries this year? It's been a bit warmer than usual. Yeah, it's been a bit of a warmer winter. Um, which can influence the the sort of fruit set. In terms of timing, uh, things might be running a little bit early, but um, there's a fair bit to go before we start picking in earnest, so we'll wait and see what the weather does, which generally has the bigger effect on timing. Yeah, right. Mm. Um, In terms of timing, could you just describe for me that system you were talking about before? It, It rolls down the eastern seaboard? Yeah, essentially it's designed to provide fruit to supermarkets 52 weeks of the year. So Costa have got interests in far north Queensland, in New South Wales and in Tasmania, basically to, to run the full season. Right. So Tasmania is last on the on the season usually? Last and first we go into the new year. Right. Um, Technically true. <laughs> it's a 12-month cycle, so really there's no first or last. It just keeps going around. Tasmania's got certainly the bulk of the, the summer fruit production. Yes, there's a lot of berries, and a lot of berries go north out of Tasmania over the summer period to supply um, consumers on the mainland, particularly the eastern seaboard. 
Why uh, blueberries at the moment are pretty cheap in the supermarkets, I've noticed, and it, it just seems to go up and down randomly. What, what's the story behind that? What we're seeing at the moment is probably the peak of the, um, the mainland crop out of northern New South, or New South Wales, um, where there's a lot of independent growers as well as other bigger interests like Costa. So there's a big amount of fruit that comes onto the market at this time, which generally reflects in the price at supermarket. Um, that cycle of, of production does fluctuate a bit, and the price goes up and down relative to that. So are you a bit uh, lucky growing in Tasmania in a sense because there's less competition? Um, Ten years ago that was probably the case but there's quite a bit of competition within Tasmania now and quite a bit of fruit coming onto the market at that time. Um, But yeah it's seasonal and we complement the mainland for for that um, summer production down here. No, just looking forward to a good season in Tasmania and I think we're set up for it at the moment. He is hoping and he's hoping the berry season lasts nice and long because we all want berries. We should be picking through till yeah, into May I hope, so, which will come around quick enough. Costa Berries Operation Manager Rowan Kyle talking to Meg Powell about the latest strawberry season in Tasmania. Merry Christmas, it's Rick Goddard from Breakfast on ABC Radio Hobart. Last year, the ABC Giving Tree raised over $250,000. That is your amazing Tasmanian generosity. That allowed us to give vouchers and Christmas Day lunches to more than 1,400 families and over 3,000 children and adults all right here in Tasmania. This year, the ABC Giving Tree has been planted and we're asking you to please dig deep and give what you can. Donate online at abc.net.au slash givingtree. On air, online, on digital and the ABC Listener. This is The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up for you shortly, a Canadian wine buying trip for uh, Tasmania as well as other big wine growing areas of Australia. We'll check the latest on the weather. But first up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Police say the 66-year-old driver of the car, which crashed into a beer garden at Dalesford, northwest of Melbourne, killing five people, will be interviewed by detectives this afternoon. Egypt says the evacuation of injured people and foreign nationals from the Gaza Strip stopped. Egypt says an attack on an ambulance and recent strikes on refugee camps have halted movements. Public Health Tasmania says more Tasmanians should heed the spike in COVID cases as a reminder to get vaccinated. The state recorded 737 new cases over the past week. That's more than double the 361 cases recorded between the 15th and 22nd of October. Dr Romy Nicholson says more than half the eligible population are not up to date with their vaccines. And Federal Infrastructure Minister Catherine King says the government will not be able to add new infrastructure projects to its pipeline as current ones face the chopping block. Hundreds of projects promised by the former government are under review after cost blowouts in excess of $30 billion. Minister King says at the moment there's no room for new projects because of rising building costs. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. Hey, Tony. Happy Monday. Lovely day. Yeah. Is it is, of, yeah. A bit of cloud, is, uh, is that the situation for most of the state? There's a bit of cloud about the east and southeast, uh, slightly less around the northwest, and it looks mostly sunny in the, into the west of the state. And the, the fine conditions will continue today with warm temperatures. Currently, we're at 20 degrees in Launceston and Hobart's at 19 degrees. Um, other places around the state are similar, so quite a warm day. And these sort of warm conditions will continue for the, until at least Friday. We're also expecting some showers about the state tomorrow, perhaps a thunderstorm in the northwest and central plateau area. And then on Wednesday, there were more extensive showers about the state and perhaps thunderstorms um, in most parts apart from maybe the northwest. Um, on, on Thursday that we could get a, um, showers and storms mainly into the east of the state. And the reason for all these this activity is a, a, tr- a slow-moving trough is moving over the state very gradually. We'll clear off uh, later Thursday into Friday. Um, on the weekend, we're going to get a westerly change, which will bring the, the temperatures down from the low 20s into the high teens, and uh, drier air will come over the state on the weekend. What sort of temperatures are we getting up to later in the week? Uh, Launceston, for instance, is getting up to uh, 26 is forecast for for um, there's, uh, for Friday, and we'll look 28 into Hobart on Friday. So, at minimum temperatures are going to be like 14 Thursday into Friday, 
that sort of thing. Also, Wednesday and Thursday on at in Hobart, um, and similarly around the state, very warm overnight temperatures. Any warnings at this stage? Zero warnings at the moment, Tony, with the with the um, nice conditions and coastal waters and swell. Yeah, we've got um, the winds today. Southeasterly is at five to fifteen knots. About the west, um, sorry, southeasterly five to five to fifteen knots. About the west, east to northeasterly is ten to twenty knots elsewhere. Although reaching up to twenty five knots at times about the far northwest. Tomorrow winds ten to twenty knots um, north to northeasterly. Winds generally 10 to 20 knots, north to northeasterly in the east, southeasterly in the west, and east to northeasterly in the north, and reaching up to about 25 knots at times about the far northwest again. The swells about in the west and south today and tomorrow, southwesterly at two, one to and a half to two and a half metres, and in the north uh, for both days, westerly up to 0.5 metres. In the east, a southerly at around one metre today, although one and a half to two metres offshore in the south and easing to about 0.5 to 1 metres tomorrow and uh, around 1.5 metres offshore in the south. The Wave Rider Boys, Cape Sorrel at the moment, 2.1 metres, and Mara Island is at 1.2 metres. Thank you, Michael. Cheers, Tony. Good on you, Michael Conway from the Bureau with the latest information for you. Well, a debate is roaring in the United Kingdom over the climate data farmers collect and who should pay for it. Supermarkets and other buyers of food are under increasing pressures to reduce greenhouse gases and prove how they're doing it. That often means farmers are being told to change and report back to the buyer with their carbon credentials. Tom Clark, a farmer from Cambridgeshire in England, grows wheat, oats, potatoes and sugar beet. He says it's coming to a head at the moment and he wants to see farmers get paid for any data they do collect. We're in an interesting position because uh, having come out of the European Union, our subsidies are being cut, so we're going to be in the same position as you are in Australia. And and the, the payments that are coming to us are all linked to environmental works, basically. But on top of that, we have this law about coming net zero across the entire economy by 2050 and in order to get there uh, a lot of supply chain companies so supermarkets but also food producers and well every company in 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 the in the economy is having to account for their carbon uh, and other and other things pollution generally in in their uh, reporting and it's becoming into law so they they have to uh, and it's a technical term, they're called scope three. I'm sure it's much the same uh, terminology over in Australia. Their scope three is what they buy in through their supply chains. And obviously that comes down, as everything always does, to the farmer at the bottom of the supply chain. And, you know, as with everything else, all the costs of the supply chain get put down onto the farmer because we are the ones that have to take the prices and there are too few of us to have any market power to sort of force other people to put their prices up. So supermarkets or food processors effectively will be using yeah, UK food producers. Yeah, using UK farmers to improve their environmental standards without paying for them. That's the concern, yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I don't need to lecture anyone. <laughs> you don't need a Ponzi Brit to tell you, uh, guys in Australia, about, you know, the very real challenges of climate change. I mean, I don't take that away for one second. You know, we're all facing really extreme weather all the time. And, and the things that used to work on farms for us don't work anymore. And I, I take it very seriously. I think I said to you before, my farm is already two metres below sea level where I farm. And it's only, you know, the... the, the, the the man-made um, earthworks and stuff that keep me dry. I don't need things to get any worse. Uh, and I do think we do have a moral responsibility to to make farming more climate-friendly, more environmentally friendly. But do we do that, you know, as a charity, as, for the good of mankind, uh, you know, out of our own pockets? Or is it fairly rewarded uh, by those that are gaining value from it? And that is, I think, the key. You know, uh, we, we shouldn't be expected to do this at a, at a cost that makes us unviable or uncompetitive, especially when, you know, imports can come from the likes of South America, which, you know, are, are very productive agriculturally, but, um, you know, they are, they are cutting down the, the rainforests to do that. And in your view, what would be a better system in terms of farmers' data about their carbon pr- footprint and who should pay for that? So I think there's only one way to, to fix this, and that's actually uh, for farmers... And this is harder for English farmers probably than many others uh, to to work together, to come together and and share that data with either each other in some kind of farmer organization or or pooling it into some kind of independent organization. And it's called, I mean, if anyone wants to Google a data union, 
that's exactly what a data union is. It's, it's the information that companies all want from all of us uh, all the time to help their businesses work. And actually, um, it, it, you, you give it not to those companies that want it, but to some other body, which can then sell that information on. It's the way to capture the value for the people when you become a member of the union. And now, if we can, if we can do that with our carbon data, own that data, and then if people want it, they, they have no choice but to buy it from us. That, I think, is probably the, the one way that I can see that, that might actually return that value back to, back to farmers. The accounting for that, the work in the in the office, so to speak, to to add up the numbers, is it a lot of work? Is it something that you should be paid for because of the effort being put in? I think I'd start from a different place. I don't think it's, it should be a cost basis. I think it's the value that what you can produce has to other people, and that's how you should measure what you get paid. Carbon itself that you save has a value, and you can sell that on on trading market um why not the data about the carbon which has value to people but there'll, there'll be people further down the supply chain that need that require that information in order to sell their product it has a value to them now if that takes you five days and endless spreadsheets to produce it or if it takes you five seconds because you know it off by heart it doesn't change the value to the people who want it at the other end and some of this has come to a head over the recent weeks in the UK with the Red Tractor organisation, almost a, a label to ensure British farming to, to consumers. Can you explain a little bit about Red Tractor and this green tractor idea and what has farmers concerned? Yes, Red Tractor is, is so we, in the UK we have something called farm assurance. Now, uh, farmers uh, in other countries, I believe we're the only country that has farm assurance as opposed to trade assurance. Uh, but basically our farmers um, are audited annually and have to fulfill certain standards. And once you are accredited as a Red Tractor farm, then you can, you can sell your produce uh, down the supply chain. Uh, that organisation isn't farmer-owned. It's it's a it's a it's a private but not for profit company which has farmer representative organisations on the board, but also a British retail consortium, and they are trying to be two things. They're trying to be quality assurance for the product and making it traceable, uh, and 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 making sure it's up to standard, but also a brand. Uh, to consumers. It's used on packaging in supermarkets as well, and they're trying to make it uh, a sort of uh, British standard mark at the same time as also being a quality assurance just to get market access. And that's where I think a lot of the confusion comes from. And they've got this idea for for a green tractor, which would improve environmental sustainability. Yeah, but does that require farmers offering up their data for free? So the details on this are uh, sketchy, but yes, essentially the the uh, my understanding of what they're proposing, and this has been promoted by the retailers in that organisation rather than the farming organisations a while ago. That because I mean farmers uh, are facing ever higher sustainability criteria. Uh, food products the same uh, and they tried to increase the standards that farmers had to achieve across the board that was uh, heavily pushed back on but the retailers still said you know we still need to be able to prove this stuff for some of the reasons I talked about earlier about their scope three emissions and, and being able to trace uh, the environmental footprint of their products so they have come back without really consulting farmers and said we're going to do a, a, you know another level of assurance here and it's going to be a green tractor like you say and it's going to say your product not only meets the standards for quality but is also uh, attaining some standards around the environment and it's not clear that there would be any extra margin or premium for that work and the, the fear of British farmers is is really that this would amount to giving away all that value as in us supplying that information to gain market access rather than a reward for the value of the stuff we've provided. But is that going to bring a, a, a lot of this to a head in terms of that debate between farmers and retailers and what's expected of who? I think you're seeing that now. Yeah, it's happening as we speak. And actually, so it's been it's been on um, what used to be called Twitter uh, in the UK, but actually uh, some of your Australia farmers have picked up on it as well and said this is exactly the same issue that you're facing over there. So I think this isn't just a UK issue. This is something that farmers farmers across the developed world uh, are having to, to deal with. Tom Clark from Cambridgeshire in England. Growing wheat, oats, potatoes and sugar beet and talking to Warwick Long about farmers being asked to collect climate data, but he says who pays the cost of that? 
Well, if you head along to the Meat and Livestock Australia website today and check out the over-the-hook prices for cattle, you won't learn too much. The website currently has all prices at nothing a kilo, no dollars a kilo. This monthly report by MLA has been struggling for months and is now seems obsolete. And the reason, according to MLA, is that not enough abattoirs are publicising their grid prices. Matt Brown asked Patrick Hutchinson, the boss of Australia's Meat Industry Council, why his members were keeping numbers under wraps. I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say we're not publicising our data, Matt. It's moreover that we're not providing individual information to MLA for them to create that report. That report has also been obsolete because grids are now so specific for our industry that they are based around brands. Mixing all of those together to try to come up with a singular index will ensure that we're not comparing apples with apples. So I think that more importantly, we've got to be very mindful that what we're asking for uh, as far as information is already there. Farmers, stock agents, feedlotters can all contact a processor at any time, and we know that they do, to get those different um, grids, to get those different specifications, and to work out for themselves how they manage that process. So I think that we've seen a lot of information, a lot of media around price. I think that we all have to take an exceptionally cold shower and sit down and look at it in the reality that it is at the moment, because this same business model, which all of us are operating in, seemed to work for one side of the group 18 months ago. Now it's working for another side of the group 18 months later. That doesn't mean it's broken. It's just that there is almost a 30% increase in supply uh, over an 18-month period, and that's got to be counting for something. It just can't be only that we're withholding information or that we're playing around with something around price. The former boss of the ACCC, Professor Alan Fells, he told the Country Hour that he's suspicious of the red meat supply chain. And he said one of the easiest ways of making a profit is when your costs fall, but you keep your prices up for a time. Eventually, you might have to bring them down, but in that interim period, your profit margin can go way up. Now, is that what we are seeing abattoirs in Australia do at the moment? To be blunt, absolutely, because farmers certainly seem to enjoy that over 2020, 2021 and 2022. However, our members uh, support uh, markets, over 100 markets all over the world. Yes, they will be recouping margin uh, whilst they had been burning at least minus $300 per beast and $30 per small stock body over the last three years. So it's only 18 months ago that the same farming organisations were concerned about the viability of processing. So that same model, that same structure, those same buyers are all still operating in exactly the same way. Pointing fingers at each other gets us nowhere. All it does is help politicians ensure that they potentially are going to be able to get voted in next time. That's not what this industry is about. This is one of Australia's oldest industries, and it has worked in this fashion over this time and grown all together. Pointing fingers helps nobody. Patrick Hutchinson, CEO of Australian Meat Industry Council, talking there to Matt Brown about the publication of meat prices on the MLA website. Coming up in just a moment, we'll talk to a delegation of uh, people from Canada looking to buy Tasmanian and Australian wine. This summer, have a safe one by learning your ABCs. A is for action plan. Having an action plan means you know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. B is for be safe. Be aware of the hazards you may face in the local area. C is for connect. Connect to abc.net.au slash emergency for the latest emergency information. During an emergency, listen to your local ABC radio station. ABC Radio is your emergency broadcaster. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A delegation from Quebec is bringing some much-needed optimism to the wine industry. Australian wine exports to Canada are down, but a team from Quebec says it's because younger consumers are looking for drops that are fun and fresh rather than bold and full-bodied. Supported by Wine Australia, the representatives are visiting wine regions in Tasmania, along with South Australia, Victoria and New South Wales. Eliza Burlage has the story. In the afternoon sun on the banks of the Murray River, South Australian winemakers poured out their wines and hopes. 
between mouthfuls of Murray Cod, small innovative winemakers showcased and pitched their products to SAQ. Last year, the multi-billion dollar purchaser, which is the sole provider of alcohol into the Canadian province of Quebec, reported table wines making up more than 70% of sales and a 15% growth of natural and organic wines. Supported by Wine Australia, the delegation is making stops in the Barossa, the Riverland, McLaren Vale, the Yarra Valley, Tasmania and the Hunter Valley. My name is Mark Olivier. I'm working for the SAQ. Uh, we're right now in the, the Riverland. So, yes, we're really enjoying ourselves right now. And I understand you've had the enviable job today of meeting a lot of uh, winemakers from the Riverland and trying some of their wines. Yes, exactly. Well, uh, this is probably the greatest part of our job, so we need to uh, travel and meet the wine producers. For the uh, Quebec region, Riverland is becoming more and more important because there's a lot of innovation coming out from the region and a lot of diversity as well, so... I think this kind of wine really fits the uh, Quebecois palette. The winemakers were saying that people in Quebec are, you know, they're not necessarily wanting what Australians think Quebecois want. They want what Australians would drink. Well, in fact, uh, we've been struggling in the past few years. I think COVID didn't help as well. The Quebecois profile taste is really uh, fitting the Europe profile, I would say, so the France, the Italian, the Spain as well. So I consider that there's an old Australian uh, category and there's a new uh, new generation as well that pushing a little bit the boundaries. And I feel that those young generation are maybe fitting a bit more what we're looking for. We got kind of tired of the uh, classic, very powerful, uh, deep uh, fruit. So, we're, yeah, we're looking for something new, fresher, fruit forward, uh, easy to drink wines. And I think Riverland really give us that. And do you import many wines at the moment from the Riverland? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's a new thing. So I think it's a buzz. Uh, it's starting, but we do have some producers that already doing well in Quebec. I just think about uh, Congreg from Delicuente is a, is a good player for us in the category. But I think those producers that we met today uh, will definitely change the image of what Australian wine are back in, back in Quebec. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to come back and uh, introduce those wines uh, in, in Quebec. Yeah. So some good news from, for some Australian winemakers, hopefully. Well, definitely. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We, we have plenty of wine that we, we taste that we like to introduce, for sure. And just briefly, you've been to the Barossa as well. You know, that's often seen by a lot of people as the, the most well-known wine region in Australia. You know, what sort of things have you been looking at or hoping to learn there? Uh, well, it's funny because I just said that the Quebecois has, has been tired of the uh, very bold wine. And what I've found in the past days, and I'm pretty sure there's a lot of surprises to come as well, I think... People are really aware of what's going on, how the, uh, the palettes evolve of the consumers. And I really think that the uh, Barroso Valley uh, changed the way that they approach the wine as well. And we really discover a lot of wine that are fitting as well, the, uh, the Quebecois palettes. So far, it's been an amazing trip, yeah. Everything is possible because of Wine of Australia, for sure. And, uh, but the generosity of the uh, producers is really nice as well. So uh, really, like I said, we're really enjoying ourselves over here. And uh, we, we hope that we, we can help the producers and, uh, to, uh, to get in our market and uh, be uh, prosperous as well. Because yeah, I'd heard that uh, imports of Australian wine to Canada had, had gone down, but perhaps that they were looking for something different. There was too much of something. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, the Australia category is uh, the biggest category of what we call the new world back in Quebec, but it, had, it has been decreasing a bit in the past few years. So really looking forward to put back the categories, and I think the people that we meet over here will, uh, will definitely help. SAQ Account Director Mark olivier Rail. So what did the winemakers who showcased their products think of the visit? Brendan Carter runs Adelaide Hills-based winery Unico Zello and buys grapes in the Riverland and the Clare Valley. He says the meeting has been a huge opportunity. Just having the interest from... These are government buyers, so uh, Quebec is a government-run monopoly, 
And so they determine exactly what wines go into this entire country. And they really are the gatekeepers, the, the main people that determine the expression of what Australian wine is going to be in, in an international community. So for them to actually physically come to the Riverland as a point of purpose, as a point of contention, as a point of, of ambition to be able to represent these wines on a world stage is firstly just massive the ability to even meet them and talk with them and give them some sense of context and narrative as to the reasons why we're here is even greater we can give them so much more context and so much many more reasons behind why we do what we do which is going to just again beef up that narrative internationally and give us the greatest chance of building the concept of riverland wine as a brand you've shared some of your wines with the representatives from saq what sort of wines did you pick and and what were their reactions so the two wines that we uh, showcased, we showcased a bunch of wines, but the two that predominantly we were very much focused on was one which is a, a white blend, aromatic white wine, um, that is made in what's called a skin contact style, or colloquially what we know as an orange wine, known as Esoterico, which uh, has the main variety as Zabibo, or what we would know as Australia in Australia as uh, Fruity Gordo amazing ancient grape variety that is uh, exceptionally undervalued from very old vines planted in the 40s that uh, they were really taken by so it, it almost flies somewhat in the face of how we value it because they obviously value it as something incredibly different they can see the Venus narrative that it can tell they can see how it fits within our culture they can see how it presents an entirely new face of Australian wine the other wine was called fresh AF which does what it says it does on the bottle it is a very fresh fun bright vibrant red wine with no tannin which again really flies in the face of traditionally what we know from australia as being you know a a very rich bold tannic structured say red wines and oaky white wines well we're looking at you know more textural aromatic whites Uh, we're also looking at very high acid reds with no tannin uh, crafted from zabibo and neridavla predominantly neridavla but co-fermented with a touch of zabibo to lift the aromatics uh, which they could see a lot of cultural sense in it goes with the food that we have in australia and that's you know what they're interested in they're interested in the the wines that represent our culture internationally not wines made in australia that we think international communities want to consume they're more interested in something a little bit more meaningful a little bit more in-depth. They're going, what food are you eating in Australia? What climate are you drinking when you're in Australia? Because when that bottle of wine goes across the counter in somewhere like Quebec, someone has made an active decision to buy Australian wine that says wine of Australia on there. They want an Australian experience. They do not want what an Australian thinks a Quebecian wants to drink. Unico Zello co-founder Brendan Carter ending that story from Eliza Burlage on the visit to a group from Quebec in Canada to tour Australian wineries, including those in Tasmania to purchase wine for that particular area because that's the only wine that can go in that area. That's the country hour for today. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.